This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Now, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, Take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. This week I found myself at a coffee shop where I may or may not have tried a unicorn frappuccino. And and when I was there, uh, I was sitting studying some things and I found myself in a conversation with uh, another person that was there and this inevitable thing happens where they will ask me what I'm studying. And I always have this decision to make. Uh, because to tell somebody that I'm, I'm working towards a master's of divinity, usually I get this response, a face full of uh, skepticism and confusion. And I try, to, I try to deal with that a little bit by making a cheesy joke about how I think it should be called a servant of divinity. <laughs> Nobody laughs. And, uh, and so... This is kind of a weird conversation, but always, one of the things I like about it is it always results in spiritual things kind of being on the table to talk about. And so in this conversation, uh, when I told this gentleman that I had, I was working on a Master's of Divinity, he immediately went into this tirade about the church and how the church is so greedy and there's poor people and there's, the Vatican is full of gold. I don't, I don't know how he knows that, but the Vatican's full of gold, and, and these poor people have no, uh, no help from the church whatsoever. Um, and this, this poor man had no idea that I was about to preach a sermon on judgment and hypocrisy. Uh, and so with gentleness and sincerity, I asked him, so it sounds like you really care a lot about the poor and the marginalized. Um, just curious, like, what is it that you do to donate and care for the poor? And he kind of was taken aback a little bit, and he said, well, um, I mean, nothing, not really anything, really. And 
And in that moment, all I could hear was Jesus' words from Matthew 7 ringing in my ears. And so when we look here at Matthew 7, where we are in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we've been through chapters 5 and 6 so far. And as we begin chapter 7, Jesus is bringing the sermon to a close. And so in chapters 5 and 6, he'd been outlining the kingdom of God and what it looks like to live rightly within that kingdom. And as we get to chapter 7, Jesus is turning towards calling for a response. If he was a Presbyterian, this would be his third alliterated point in his sermon outline. And, and so as he's calling for a response, Jesus shows the brilliance of his understanding of the human heart. So hear me, Jesus knows that as he's calling us to live within the kingdom, that we might have two propensities for self-protection. The first one is hypocrisy. This is when you hear some really good teaching and, and, and it's messing with you a little bit and the only thing you say, the only way you respond is, man, so-and-so really needs to hear this. The second self-protection would be cynicism. We hear Jesus call us to such lofty ideals of living within the kingdom and we respond with, yeah, but nobody can really do that. People don't actually change. And so it's these two temptations towards a false response that Jesus is addressing in this passage. We're going to look at hypocrisy and then cynicism as Jesus identifies them and uproots them in our own lives. So look at these together with me in turn. How not to be a hypocrite. Verses one through six, uh, I get this word hypocrite from verse five. Jesus says it himself. He says, you hypocrite. And what does he mean by hypocrite? Well, a hypocrite is uh, something, somebody who practices, doesn't practice what they preach, right? It's that perennial parental proverb, do as I say, not as I do. And, and this is hypocrisy is what Jesus is getting at. The writer Oz Guinness says, hypocrisy is when our lives contradict our words. And that hypocrisy is a lie told in deeds rather than words. Now, if you've ever been over to the East Coast, to Cape Canaveral, and seen a shuttle launch, uh, there's this, this jarring thing the first time you see it. And what happens is you see the shuttle take off and, and start rising up into the sky, but it's taking a little bit before the sound of the boosters actually reaches your ears. And so the distance between you and the shuttle launch creates this chasm between what you see and what you hear. Hypocrisy has this same jarring effect because what we see and what we hear, they don't measure up, they don't match. There's no congruence between the two. And so it, 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 we respond with this kind of uh, aversion. And so this lack of integration between our speaking and our doing, what we say and how we act, is hypocrisy. According to Jesus, the epitome of hypocrisy is when we judge people by a standard that we ourselves do not keep. So if you look at verse one, Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. And probably along with John three sixteen, this may be the most quoted verse in our society today. People know this verse maybe more than any other. And usually, uh, this verse is kind of used to really get under the skin of Christians. 
In 2007, there was research done on uh, 20-something-year-olds that don't have any Christian faith. And it found that nearly nine out of 10 of them view Christians as judgmental. Now, given the fact that Jesus says, judge not, uh, this also leads people to view Christians oftentimes as though they're hypocrites. Now, some of this is warranted, and we need to own that and be honest about that as the church. Every time we hear of a, a, a prominent preacher caught up in some money embezzlement, every time we hear about some uh, committing of adultery, every time we hear about uh, a, a preacher, a pastor who's committing spiritual abuse, we need to corporately lament the accuracy of the label hypocrite. But it's not always warranted. And in order to see what Jesus is getting at here, I want to make a distinguishment. I want to make a distinction here between uh, what I would call discernment and condemnation. Okay, discernment is when Jesus says, judge not, he's not referring to uh, the call that we all have to discern. Discerning is how we distinguish between right and wrong, between good and evil, between just and unjust, and everybody everywhere does this. Jesus, a little bit later, says in this section, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. And so surely, if he's telling us that we'll be able to see evidence in people's lives and by that, recognize who they really are, he can't be saying that judgment in the form of discernment is wrong. So that's not what he means by judge not. What Jesus means is the second form of judgment, condemnation. It's when we kind of ascend to God's seat on the judge's bench and then from a position of superiority, we condemn those beneath us. What Jesus is talking about is the finger-pointing, blame-gaming, fault-finding, down-the-nose-looking, holier-than-thou kind of judgment. This is what he's meaning when he says, judge not. It's when we judge, and, and the goal is not discernment, it's denigration. It's when we judge, and the goal is not distinction, but the destruction of dignity. Jesus says, judge not. Now, I want you to hear me say this. This isn't a religious problem. This isn't an irreligious problem. This is a sin problem that's at the heart of all human beings. The philosopher and apologist Francis Schaeffer has this really helpful uh, illustration. He says, hypothetically, just imagine if you were born and you lived your whole life with a tape recorder hung around your neck. And every time you made some sort of a moral judgment that you bound another human being by, the tape recorder clicked on and started recording what you said. So you carry out your whole life, and every time you say, man, he really shouldn't do that. Gosh, I can't believe she did blank. Every single moral judgment is recorded on the recorder. And then we stand before God on judgment day, and all he does is he simply presses play and plays back your thousands and thousands of moral judgments that you bound other people by. As you get to the end of the tape, you stand before God and he simply asks you, in light of your own moral standards, how do you measure up? How do you think you would stand with that kind of a question? 
Schaefer goes on and he says, a man is judged and found lacking on the same basis on which he has tried to bind others. And Jesus says, this is hypocrisy. So I wanna ask the question, why? Why are we so prone to being hypocritical? And Jesus asked this question in verse three. If you look, he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Is it not because in casting others down, we elevate ourselves? Is it not because in condemning others, we take the heat off the condemnation that we ourselves feel? Is it not that because when we make others feel lesser, if even for a moment, we feel a little bit better about ourselves? I've become increasingly aware of this propensity in my own heart, uh, this tendency to size people up according to my own arbitrary standards that I make up in the moment. And uh, I was thinking about when I play soccer. So if you've ever played soccer with me, you know I'm not the best soccer player, but I, I enjoy the sport. And when I play soccer, oftentimes this is what happens. Somebody will beat me down the line or uh, do something sweet that I can't do. And, and I feel this sense of being lesser than. And my heart goes to, well, yeah, but I'm probably smarter than that guy. Or even worse, at least I'm a Christian and my identity is not found in soccer. <laughs> right? It's, it's almost embarrassing for me to admit that those are thoughts that run through my mind. But this is what Jesus is getting at. He's cutting to the core of how we try to alleviate ourselves by making others inferior to us. And so I'm less condemnable in my own sight when I can show how I am better than somebody else. When you're around people, I want you to pay attention to your thoughts. How do you size people up? How do you determine who's superior, who's inferior? What's the standard by which you judge them? Is it intellect? Is it beauty? Is it position, prestige, power? How do you judge others? And so to use Jesus' words, what happens is when we play this role as judge, we highlight the faults of others and we downplay our own. And what ends up happening is we see the speck that is in your brother's eye and we do not notice the log that is in our own eye. But where's God in all of this? Well, he's been usurped. He's been kicked out of his rightful role. When, when I play judge, I play God. When I get into this seat, I'm replacing him on the seat of judgment. And so what happens is this, this desire to be like God, judging between who's good and who's evil, which if you remember is at the core of Adam and Eve's fall into ruin, right? Uh, when I play God's role, I kick him out of his rightful place. I take his seat of judgment. I'm willfully ignoring my own faults and I'm enlarging the sins of whoever my condemnation sets its sights on. And this disordering of relationship is just as damaging to the hypocrite as it is to the one who I'm condemning. Jesus warns us against this. If you look with me at verse six, he illustrates the danger do not give to dogs what is holy 
And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, most of us have been taught this verse before, and, and it's, it's this caveat, right? And it goes something like this. When you're out sharing the gospel with people and you come across a good old hard-hearted heathen and they just don't want anything to do with Jesus, at some point, just stop casting the pearls before that swine, right? Isn't that kind of how it's typically talked about? The most ardent atheists, you know, those dogs just don't give them what's holy. And I think to myself, I'm not really convinced that's what Jesus is saying here. In fact, I think what Jesus is doing is I think he's using instructional irony. It's kind of like what Jesus says to the Pharisees, I came not for the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, does Jesus really mean that the self-righteous Pharisees don't need to repent? Of course not. He's being ironic. And so it is here. Because think about this in, in a Jewish context. Maybe the most degrading thing you could ever call somebody is a pig or a dog. And what do you have to do to determine who the pigs and who the dogs are? You've got to judge them. And so what Jesus is saying here is, is when we have this tendency to say, you're such a pig, you're such a dog, you don't, you don't even deserve holy things. Jesus is saying that people will perceive your attitude of condemnation. And what's going to happen is they're going to despise you in return. And he's calling us to never, ever, ever use holy things to denigrate another person. So what do we do about our hypocrisy? Just as the heart of hypocrisy is disordered relationships, the healing of hypocrisy is in the reordering of relationships. And so what Jesus says is that we need to have God, others, and ourselves put in their proper places. To to use his language, he says in verse 5, that rather than displacing God and, and judging others, you must first take the log out of your own eye. But there's a problem here. There's a reason why we don't like to take notice of our own logs. The reason is, is that we have this fear that if we start drawing too much attention to our own logs, to our own faults and failings, that we might deserve condemnation for them. And so this fear is what, is what prevents us from actually addressing the logs in our own eyes. If only we could have a promise that said that even if the worst logs came forth, we wouldn't be judged for them. It's kind of like in the the mobster movies when when the informant comes in and they're they're pleading with the FBI or something like that, that I'm not gonna talk until you promise me amnesty, right? And there's this, they're not gonna actually divulge any incriminating details until they have in writing that there's no way that they could go down for this. It's the same thing for us. There's no way we're going to look at the logs in our own eyes unless we have some sort of promise, some sort of assurance that we're not going to be condemned for them. And this promise, this reordering of relationships is what we call justification. Now to be justified is to be judged by the one who sees with logless clarity and to be declared right in his sight. 
To be justified is when Jesus put himself forward, judged by men as a dog and a pig, and judged by God and condemned so that we could be set free from the fear of condemnation that we deserve. To be justified is, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so this no condemnation is good news, but, but really I think most of us in here probably know what this is, but there's a disconnect. I think the disconnect comes from God's declaration of no condemnation and our hearts actually receiving that. Now I think that what happens is we don't realize that uh, no condemnation is such a big umbrella that it includes self-condemnation. And that as we begin and continue to trust Jesus for being our justification, our hope and righteousness, that applies to our heart more deeply over time and we begin to be freed from even our self-condemning thoughts. The Apostle John predicted this. In 1 John 3.20, he says this, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. So the application of justification is is reminding our hearts that they have no grounds to condemn or criticize us anymore. Because of Jesus, we're freed, and there is therefore now no condemnation. And as this writing of relationships begins to occur, we can finally judge not. Because we're able to face our own logs. We're able to to be able to be acquitted on all accounts. And then we can see clearly to care for the specks in the eyes of the other. You know what it's like to have something in your eye. Whether it's a log or a speck, it's miserable, right? I remember the first time I put contact lenses in. The contact folded and got stuck up back in my eyeball, right? This is everybody's worst nightmare when you first try contacts. And I lived an entire day that way. Um, like no medal, I didn't get a medal for that, but I think I deserved one, I think. But th- all day long, my eyes just irritating me. And so hear me when I say this, specs, logs, it doesn't matter, something in your eye is not good. And until we take the initiative to, to deal with our own logs, we won't be able to move forward caring for others to help them remove the specks in their eyes. Our relationships are reordered because when God is judge. He alone can free us from our condemnation. As we receive that, apply it to our our own hearts, we're able to go out and love others well. Now, there's a a famous story about G.K. Chesterton. He was asked by the Times to write an article answering the question, what is wrong with the world? And Chesterton, being uh, as witty as he always is, replied, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. (laughs) And justification frees us to live with this kind of honest humility about who we really are. Pastor Ray Ortland Jr. says it like this. The kind of God we really believe in is revealed in how we treat one another. The lovely gospel of Jesus positions us to treat one another like royalty, And every non-gospel positions us to treat one another like dirt. But we will follow through horizontally on whatever we really believe 
vertically. Which brings us to our second temptation. The temptation to protect ourselves from responding to Jesus through cynicism. And so verses 7 through 11 are about how not to be a cynic. Now where do I get cynicism from? Well, if you read verses 7 through 11 closely, you'll, you'll notice that Jesus is building an argument in order to persuade his hearers. Look with me at verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? That's the language of persuasion there. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good, good things to those who ask him? Who is Jesus persuading? He's persuading the person who has just heard him say, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And the cynic in them rises up to say, yeah, right. That's impossible. Nobody could ever do that. People don't really change. And instead of that, Jesus wants us to respond by crying out to a father who's good, but instead we harden our hearts in cynicism. We've got this kind of scar tissue that builds up around our heart because we have asked, we have sought, we have knocked, and seemingly got no answer. And so we begin to have this feeling of been there, done that, and our heart hardens a little bit more. Author Paul Miller says it this way, the opposite of a childlike spirit is a cynical spirit. Cynicism is increasingly the dominant spirit of our age. Now there's all these philosophical underpinnings as to why that is, but just hear me and trust me if you will, that this is true, that you're affected by cynicism. So what is cynicism? It's the constantly questioning the sincerity of others, especially God. It's this uh, Vantage point that allows you to see through everything and everyone to, to get a real good look at the underbelly of all things. It's this kind of uh, supposed x-ray vision that enables you to see right through to the motives of other people. This is cynicism. And the, the insidious, insidiousness of cynicism is that it's actually based on reality oftentimes. Right? I mean, the, the allure of cynicism is that it's accurate, and that it's safe. It's accurate because people really do have ulterior motives oftentimes. It's safe because it frees us from the risk of having to trust anyone, not least of which God. But hear this, the danger of cynicism is its corrosiveness and its desensitization. It corrodes like acid. It wears away at everything that gives beauty and meaning to our lives. It desensitizes us. It, our hearts become kind of whole, hardened over and calloused and no longer able to risk hope or to believe. And so into this, Jesus is speaking to us. Do you view every other person as though they're like a used car salesman? Now, if you're a used car salesman, I apologize, but it's a cliche. Um, do you look at other people and just expect that they've got their fingers crossed behind their back? Do you interact with people waiting to find out where the strings are attached? If you do, you might be a cynic. And I want you to hear me because cynicism has this, this 
gradual growth over time. Uh, when I was in my undergrad, I was at one point potentially going to be a Florida biology major. That's a thing. And I got this great book that shows me all the different animals and plants and whatnot. So I became somewhat of a nerd. And there's this tree that we have in Florida called a strangler fig. Look it up. It's amazing. And this is what happens. A strangler fig is almost like a parasite, because it drops in on, uh, birds drop it somehow, and, and then it lands on other trees, and it begins to grow upwards and downwards, but it needs a tree in order to be sustained. And over time, it begins to envelop the tree, and the very thing, the original tree that it used for structure and support begins to die for lack of sun, for lack of nutrients, and all that's left is the strangler fig with a completely hollowed out core. This is cynicism. Cynicism gradually envelops our hearts until all that's left is a hollow core that's hollow and hopeless and has no ability to trust. Professor Jerem Barr says this, when we're cynical, we doubt God's motives and the sincerity of his promises to us in Jesus Christ. For all of us, cynicism will destroy us. But for those of us who claim to be Christians, cynicism is forbidden. So what do we do about our cynicism? Well, remember, Jesus is persuading here. He knows our cynical heart, and he's lovingly drawing us to something more. One commentator points out the difference between ask, seek, and knock. And he describes it like this. If, if you're a child or if you have a child and a child is looking for their father, if the father's right in the same room, they would simply ask. But if the father's somewhere around the house, then they have to get up and actually seek. If the father's behind a closed door, maybe in his office, they have to knock and expect that he's going to respond. And so Jesus is aware that when we pursue God in prayer, we experience varying levels of his nearness. And he calls us, he promises us that if we ask, we'll be answered. If we seek, we'll find. If we knock, the door will be opened. And so Jesus is slowly, gently arguing with our cynicism here. Now, when Jesus says, ask, seek, knock, he says this, everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. That's a promise. And so Jesus is saying, ask, seek, knock. But here, a little bit more. I, I want to use an analogy. I want to use an illustration to bring this home. He's a good preacher. And so in verse nine, verses 9 through 11, he says this. Or which one of you, if your son or your daughter asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? How do you really come to know God as your Father from the heart? It's not possible without risking it's not possible without the vulnerability of hoping. And so what Jesus is calling us to is that in childlike trust, we would come to God and we'd ask him for good things. 
for bread, for a fish. But the reality is, is that sometimes in our foolishness, we ask him for a stone and a serpent. And being a good father, he still refuses to give us those things and instead gives us good gifts. And so when we're tempted to hear God as not responding to us, maybe we're asking for a stone rather than a loaf of bread. And Jesus is getting at this here. And and I think it's amazing because if we would just ask and seek and knock and trust and be vulnerable and hope that God will actually respond, we would come to know him increasingly as our father. I can't can't get over the fact that in, in verse 11, Jesus does something kind of crazy. He bluntly calls us evil and then in the same sentence calls us children of the father. And so, listen, if there's anybody in this world who has the right to be a cynic, it's God himself. Could you imagine knowing everything, even human motives? Could you imagine being present to all human evil and suffering and injustice at all times? Could you imagine the propensity of God that he could just be a cynic if he wanted to be, if it wasn't against his character? He would be just to write us off. But instead, Jesus tells us that rather than responding with cynicism, the father responds with grace and he makes the evil into his children and then lavishes them with generosity. This is why cynicism is forbidden for Christians. So to wrap it up, the final point here is how to live the golden rule. Verse 12 is interesting because it's kind of tagged on there and it maybe doesn't seem like it belongs. But look at it with me. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That little word, so, leads us to believe that somehow Jesus is connecting this to the two sections before. He's connecting it with how not to be a hypocrite and how not to be a cynic. But what's the connection? In order for us to do unto others as we would want them to do to us, we must be justified. We must be freed from self-protective hypocrisy and we must be able to see clearly so we can move towards others with humble honesty. But we also must learn how to call out to the Father with childlike trust forsaking cynicism and risking expecting that he'll be generous towards us and others. As people see our humble honesty and our childlike trust, they'll see that maybe we're not all hypocrites. And they'll also see that maybe cynicism is not the only response to life in such a disillusioning world. Now, I almost feel bad about concluding this way but I can't help but think that this illustration is so fitting. You're nervous. Uh, How many of you have seen Friday Night Lights? Okay, so this show is about a high school football team called the Dillon Panthers. And as the Panthers are going out of the locker room onto the field, they chant this incredible motto that's throughout the whole series. Anybody know it? Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. While I don't think that that's based on the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's actually kind of fitting. 
Jesus says that as we deal with the logs in our own eyes, we'll have clear eyes to be able to see and to care for others. Jesus says that when we, when we forsake cynicism, we'll have full hearts with hope and trust in a God who cares for us. And that'll enable us to live lovingly in a world where we're able to do unto others as we would have them do to us. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. If you would, pray with me. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Holy Spirit, Give us eyes to see and hearts that are able to follow Jesus in this world, no longer as hypocrites, but justified. No longer as cynics, but trusting our Father to give us good things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.